Good evening everyone and welcome if this is the first talk that you've been to this week and welcome back if you've been before. This is our final summer school theme talk for this year. As always, I'm welcoming you on behalf of the whole summer school panel. In ascending order of our shoe size, we are Michael Allard. Kate Brady McKenna, Nicola Temple, and Jane Blackall. Michael, I think we missed your wave. <laughs> you really are welcome here this evening. You are welcome no matter what. Wherever you're joining us from, however you're feeling, however settled you are in the space you're joining us from, you are welcome here. Your presence in our midst and on our screens is important to us. These theme talks are sacred offerings from the speakers and they're offered as acts of worship as well as lectures. The overall theme of the week, <clears throat> excuse me, is right relationship practicing love, peace and justice in everyday life. And the talks are around an hour and 15 minutes. This means the speakers get to go more deeply into their topics than they might expect to in a sermon. Excuse me, I'm really sorry. <clears throat> I will be introducing the speakers shortly, but first I do have some housekeeping notices. These are important. They help our time together run smoothly and they remind us that right relationship is important, no matter what the setting. You will have noticed that you are muted and the chat box is not available. It is very much easier for everyone to concentrate on these offerings without those distractions. If you do have any questions that come up, please just make a note of them. And if you still want to ask them after the talks are over, contact the speakers at that point and ask if they're happy for you to do that. Do remember to do that in the spirit of this being a sacred offering. Subtitles are available. If you're on a laptop or a PC, they are, the buttons are down there somewhere. I'm afraid I don't know where they are if you're on a tablet. If you want to play with them, play with them now while I'm speaking, uh, rather than once the talks have started. Do bear in mind they are live and automatic, so if something really strange seems to be being said, it might not be. They do sort themselves out when we, uh, show, when we convert them to video. An hour and so an hour longer than an hour is a long time to sit still. So you have our blessing to turn your cameras off whenever you feel you'd like to. Remember, it's also not good for us to stare constantly at a screen for that long. So do what you need to do to be comfortable. If you want to turn your camera off the whole time, that's also fine. If you do get up for a stretch or anything else, please turn your camera off before you step away. After the talk finishes, there's going to be a five minute break so we can all make ourselves comfortable. And then we're inviting you to gather again to join in smaller groups to have some guided discussion on the talk. If you need to leave at that point, you do go with our blessing. Those talks aren't monitored or recorded, but we do know that you'll be respectful and compassionate. 
as this is our last evening together, I'm just going to remind you that all of the talks are available on YouTube. It would be lovely if you wanted to share those links amongst your congregations and your friendship groups. Perhaps each talk could be used to stimulate a group conversation between you. All the talks from all of these online summer schools are available on video. And if you want to go further back, there's also a rich variety of the earlier theme talks available on audio. If you'd like a pastoral discussion with a minister about something which comes up in these talks, you're invited to contact Reverend Michael Allard or myself any time between the session ending and 9.45pm. Our contact details went out with your invitation and we will each keep an eye on our email and our messenger chat boxes. Please do bear in mind that this is for pastoral issues relating to these talks. And so... Our theme speakers this evening are, and they're in alphabetical order of first names, because I have no idea what their shoe sizes are, Cody Coyne and Winnie Gordon. Cody was born in Flint, Michigan, where he attended the local Unitarian Universalist Church. He felt a call to ministry when he was 16, but initially pursued a career in music. He came to Britain to study at the Royal Northern College of Music, in 2006. Cody began his ministerial training at Harris Manchester College, Oxford in 2011 under the Reverend Dr. Arthur Stewart. He was appointed minister at Cross Street Unitarian Chapel in 2015. He serves on the Unitarian Peace Fellowship, Manchester District Association, and is a trustee for the Faith Network for Manchester. He works with a number of groups and organisations to assist vulnerable communities. He lives in North Manchester with his wife, Catherine, and son, Thomas. His interests include music, computers, and cycling. Winnie, whose pronouns are she and her, is of the Black British diaspora, queer, cisgender, a minister in the Unitarian faith, serving the Birmingham New Meeting Congregation. Her involvement in the wider Unitarian movement includes a number of occasions on summer school programme, participation on various Unitarian committees, Unitarian College Academic Board and the Worship Studies course. More recently, Winnie completed a master's research study investigating the inclusivity of people of colour in the Unitarian worship community. She's also involved with the Ladywood Community Project, a local charity that aids families experiencing financial hardship and poverty. In her spare time, she loves to read, enjoys life sculpture classes and hand-building ceramics. Winnie believes learning is lifelong and so continues to explore faith, worship practice and justice issues. So... I invite you to take a couple of deep breaths to settle yourself into a spirit of sacred receptiveness and community. And I'm going to pass you over to Cody and Winnie. Our opening words are from Sophia Lion Falls. We gather in reverence before the wonder of life. The wonder of this moment. The wonder of being together so close yet so 
apart. Each hidden in our own secret chamber. Each listening, each trying to speak. Yet none fully understanding, none fully understood. We gather in reverence before all intangible things that I see not, nor ear can detect. That hands can never touch, that space cannot hold, and time cannot measure. Good evening. Welcome to our uh, last night of summer school. I'm uh, honored to be uh, here speaking along with Winnie, and uh, we're going to have some period of uh, devotion and, and sacred space before we get into the, the meat of the, the conversation. So we begin with a reading, a prayer for reconciliation by the Reverend Anne Barker, Minister of the Westwood Unitarian Congregation in Canada. We gather with a hunger for reconciliation. What is done cannot be undone. What is done next must now be done with care. We gather because we are hopeful, because we have visions and dreams of a brighter future, that there may be more than vision in this room. These are the wounds that we must heal together. Grief and anger for all that has been lost, guilt or fear in the reliving, pain that has gone without sufficient comfort, mistrust that was earned, that continues burning still. Every injury we may have named and yet still carry those we haven't, can't, or dare not speak aloud, those we are not ready to make public, those still not recognized, accepted, understood. These are the wounds that seek replacement not cancellation or denial, wounds we will tend cautiously, applying the salve of understanding, forming scars that mark our history without disfiguring the future we might share. This is not a time for quick solutions, fancy talking. This is a slow precision this is a prayer for peace. We are new at this endeavor, new at listening, new at hearing, new at taking enough time to honestly receive one another's stones. What is done cannot be undone. 
What is done next must now be done with care. We gather because we are hopeful, because we have visions and dreams of a brighter future. May the strength of this time together help us to walk forward. May the wisdom of this experience help us to know our path. May we have the courage to return as often as necessary until our way is clear. May we have the perseverance together to see it through. May we cause it to be so. Amen. And please join with me in singing our first hymn, Carl Seberg's translation of the Transylvanian Unitarian text, Find a Stillness, Hold a Stillness, Let a Stillness Carry Me. Adam Lawrence Dyer, educator, minister in the Unitarian Universalist tradition in America, African-American and LGBT and justice reform activist, reminds us in his book of meditations, Love Beyond God, that it is in our relationships with each other that we form community, healing, reconciliation in our broken world. He explained love beyond God is an invitation to dialogue. There can be no kind of community and no reconciliation between divided and separate ideologies about race or religion. 
until we actually get to know one another. So I share here his first poem as it speaks to me of who we could be if we were centered in right relationship. What if every time you woke, your sigh was felt by every being on earth? What if every time you spoke, your words were heard by every ear on earth? What if when you told a joke, you tickled the senses of every smile on earth? What if with each tender stroke, you shared your touch with every hand on earth? What if when your heart broke, you tasted the tears running down every cheek on earth. No bond or brand or guilted yoke. Surely this is love that reaches beyond, that holds one to another and every other to one, no matter the colour or where we're from. This is now, this is we, this is love, this is God, and this is love beyond God. I invite us now to uh, listen to some music called Make It Home by Toby Nwigwi. Hey, look, I pray you catch a wave that doesn't subside. This for the nappy heads in heaven. With a nappy head, Christ by their side. I pray you catch a wave that doesn't subside. This for the nappy heads in heaven. With a nappy head, Christ by their side. Yeah. May your streets be paved with gold, yeah Hope my whole hood make it home, yeah May your streets be paved with gold, yeah Hope my whole hood make it home, yeah Cause the world can be toxic Especially when your skin look like chocolate at one point they sold us for profit But we made it out of the godlet we chose him Yeah Oh my mama, the south side still holding Yeah Go for broke for the ones that are broken Yeah Please don't make me no hashtag or slogan My whole hood is golden that's why I pray you catch a wave That doesn't subside This for the nappy heads in heaven 
With an heavy head, Christ by their side, I pray you catch away. The doesn't subside, this for the nappy heads in heaven. With an nappy head, Christ by their side, yeah. May your streets be paved with gold. Paved with yeah. gold. Hope my whole hood make it home. Your streets be paved with gold. Paved with yeah. gold. Hope my home would make it home. Yeah. Cause they riding with chapels. It might turn your taper to pasta. Don't hardly see daughters at altars. Probably cause there ain't no more fathers. They stole them. Yeah. Put in cages by racist patrolling. Is a lane to the pins like we bowling. Yeah. Please don't make us no hashtags or slogans. Yeah. Black people are golden. That's why I pray you catch a wave that doesn't subside. This for the nappy heads in heaven. With a nappy head, Christ by their side. I pray you catch a wave. The doesn't subside, this for the nappy heads in heaven. With a nappy head, Christ by their side. Yeah. May your streets be paved with gold. Yeah. Hope my whole hood make it home. Yeah. May your streets be paved with gold. My home would make it home. I hope you make it home. I hope you make it home. I hope you make it home. There's a sharing of lived experience interspersed with philosophical thought and common sense that I love about summer school, where speakers give with open heartedness and participants embrace with wonder. I have experienced wonder all week. Thank you, speakers. I hope tonight you can accept Cody and I sharing of our lived experience with the openness it is given and the encouragement to engage outside this space. Every mother, every parent who cares and loves their child, prays for their child to make it home safe every time they step outside the door. 
it is something that is common among humanity, no matter the color or creed. And I don't wish to take away anything from that. But I must add that people of color may take that one step further, pray a little harder, as they know the added dangers of racial hate, exclusion and unkindness that exist outside their doors. Now, as Kate said, I identify as from the black British diaspora. I have one child also black, aged 22, short and slight in body, and who often wears a hoodie. When they step outside the door, as with most parents, I pray they make it home. Two weeks ago, this happened to my child on the way home from work around 11.30 at night. The bus driver, after letting five passengers off, refused to let my child on. We are full, he said. So my child started to walk home in the dark. As they walked home, headphones in the air on a main Birmingham road, a car slowed, the window went down and two water balloons flew out, hitting my child's body and laughingly they drove away. My prayers were answered. My child made it home, but soaking wet and in emotional distress. Professor Anthony Reddy, lecturer at Oxford University from his book, Is God Colorblind? He writes, racism, sexism, patriarchy, homophobia, ageism, classism, among other things, all intrinsically deny the love of God because their perpetrators fail to love the wisdom of God that has given them relational opportunities to love their neighbor, often when that neighbor is not like them. Friends, we have listened to some wonderful speakers this week that gave us a broad outlook on relational opportunities, right relationships, sometimes reflecting on issues that Professor Anthony Reddy mentions. Each of the isms given relates to our identities. Some identities are hidden, some identities are not. Although all of these identities can be said to encounter prejudice, hate and discrimination in many forms, including microaggressions, systemic denial and violence. Although these isms often intersect with the multiplicity of our identities. Tonight, Cody and I invite you to focus with us on the arena of right relationship with racism and right relationship with repair. As people challenged to love their neighbor, not like them. The conversation may get a little uncomfortable, but bear with us. Give yourself permission 
to sit with the dis-ease, the discomfort. So take a deep breath as we traverse and mindful of emotions. Two years ago, on the 29th of May, 2020, the world was shaken by an act of uncaring, inhumane conduct that resulted in the murder of a man called George Floyd in Minnesota by several police officers, but mainly police officer Derek Chavon. As he leaned on George's neck and back, restricting his breathing. I said the world was shaken rather than shocked because millions of black and people of color were not shocked. It wasn't the first time black people were killed by the ones employed to protect and it would not be the last time. At least you feel that this is an American problem. Let me invite you to do the research yourself or look into the report written by Ian Minter, a member at Birmingham Unitarians, who spent the last two years researching the black and blue deaths in the UK and found over a 40-year period, three dozen deaths by asphyxiation by positional restraint, the same cause as George Floyd. But what George Floyd's death did for the world is to shake it up to the inequity that black and brown bodies in whiteness majority countries experience. There were riots, there were marches and protests all over the world. Conversations took place. More people came out and spoke about their lived experience of racism and people listened. Such beautiful formation of right relationship happened in the aftermath of George's death. Words explaining the behavior of racism, not new, but known by few, were learnt. I learnt new words too, words that accurately described the experiences I had most of my life. Like tone policing, white apathy, white privilege, anti-blackness, white silence, micro-invalidation, micro-assault and insult, gaslighting, white racial conditioning. Jane said the truth on Monday, just because it's normal doesn't mean it's right. I was used to the ugliness of racism, of overt name calling and being told to go back to my jungle or country or being hit at or intimidated at a bar because I was a black bee. I was used to the monkey chants, the banana references or the big mama jokes. But what I didn't have was the language to articulate well the subtle indirect smiley racism that gave me the dead stone in the pit of my stomach feeling. The racism hard to prove with its subliminal messaging. They were experiences that did not sit right with me 
that forced me into a relationship of masking, of hypervigilancy and fear, where I was left afraid to speak my truth. Eduardo Bonilla Silva, author, professor of sociology at Duke University, tells us in his book, Racism Without Racist, that we are living in a new ideology of racism called the color blind racism, meaning it's more subtle than the simple name calling or burning crosses by men dressed in white sheets. A racism that is covert, systemic and institutionalized. A racism steeped in criticizing the other, their values and morality and work ethics. And a racism that proclaims white people victims of supposedly reversed racism. Eduardo's words express our current situation, be it England, Wales, Scotland or Ireland, be it United States or Canada or Australia or France. We live today in a world where many proclaim they are not racist, not racist. Yet racism is occurring. Please believe me when I say I rarely call anyone racist who does not call themselves by their identity. Certain politicians, the exception. I do believe we live in a world in bed with racist ideas that implicitly and explicitly has voiced racial, racial stereotypes, entrenched racism in our policies and institutions. And because of our upbringing, our schooling, the history we learned, the books we were forced to read, the artworks in our museums, and the fears, the fears our loved ones have imbued in us of the other, we've all absorbed racialized ideologies and can easily spew racist ideas and words without the intention of being a racist. I'd like to draw your attention to the definition of Ibram X. Kindi. Professor Kindi is an author, a professor, an anti-racist activist and historian. And he was also the rare lecture speaker, similar to our John Ryder Beard, not keynote speaker at the Unitarian Universalist 2022 General Assembly Annual Conference, and he defines racist as such. Ibram X. Kendi, a racist person, one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. Anti-racist person one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. Now, I like Kinder's definition because it explains how we can easily spew racist ideology, even if it's not our intention. 
Moreover, he explains how we can evolve into being the opposite and anti-racist through our actions. But note how there is no not racist. You can only be racist or anti-racist. And an anti-racist is not possible by doing nothing. It's not possible through inaction. One must be actioning or expressing anti-racism ideas. I also like Kendi's definition because it defines by the impact, not the intention. You may intend not to support racist policies and ideas and practices and traditions, but unless you are actively supporting anti-racist ideology, it is your impact that defines your label. It's a bit like you may intend not to be pregnant, but the impact is you are. The danger lies in not knowing something is racist, not accepting that lived experience of the other when they say your words or action has done harm, the denial. The danger lies in doing nothing, in changing nothing. You are the fear perpetuating racism. As faith people, we understand mistakes. But as faith people, we must also lean into learning from our mistakes so we can build right relationships. We must be on guard for the colorblind mentality that refuses to acknowledge historical legacy, racialized structures, and insist racism is individual yet often generalizes people of color into a homogeneous stereotypical group as young thugs or single parent benefit takers with absentee fathers. We must be on guard for we have not reached that promised land of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where we live in a white majority nation where we are not judged by the color of our skin but by the contents of one's character. We must be on guard. I don't see color. They're not black. They're just people. Well, we didn't have slaves here. They need to just get over it. The past is the past. I treat all people the same, regardless of color. That happens to me, too. Look, I didn't get the job because they gave it to a black man. Talking about different races is divisive. Do these sound familiar to you? They are to me. All are examples of colorblind racism that has been heard in our churches. as I navigate the systems and structures in place that lays down the rules of civility, from school to church, work to friendships, I engage in the apparatus of state, 
systemic manipulation. Systems of minimalization systems of minimalization that mold what I'm allowed to know, allowed to do, allowed to say, allowed to wear, and who I am allowed to be. It's a relationship in fear. Fear of getting things wrong, fear of saying things to contradict others, even while telling the truth of the situations. Fear that I will be labelled as politicalised and can get me ostracised and straight out that can get me hated and harmed. As I was saying, and often as the only non-white person in whiteness spaces, I'm left with the option of not speaking up, perpetuating the status quo, or offering up the other perspective, often unwelcome, often uncomfortable to the ears airing it. If you are one that does not see my race, then how can you profess to want to be in right relationship with me? I see my Afro-Caribbean heritage in the darkness of my black skin, and I celebrate it. What do you see? If you never see race, then you never see the racism experienced each day by millions of people of colour. Do you ever see the young black man stopped and searched by police officers and ask yourself why you weren't stopped? Or do you, like in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke's Gospel, walk on by? How often do you see the security guard when you enter a shop? Once? Twice? on entry and exit? Or do you see them as you journey down the different aisles, as you pick something up through the corner of your eye by the cash register? And are you stopped at the door to prove your purchase because your items are not in a bag? That's some people of colour's experiences. Black parents grow up their kids to always get a receipt. When the question of slavery is brought up and your thought-out answer is, we didn't have slavery here, were you even considering all those enslaved black and brown people who were brought to England as slaves, given as gifts or sold at auction houses here in London and made to live as slaves while here? Or the 800,000 British-owned enslaved people, supposedly freed at the abolishment of slavery in 1833, but made to continue their servitude under the guise of apprenticeship for another four years, despite being called freed. Or the compensation of 20 million pounds, 16 billion pounds in today's money paid to British slave owners, while the 800,000 freed slaves 
received nothing. When you think that slavery didn't happen here, I want you to consider the fact that the descendants of those enslaved paying taxes between 1833 to 2015 paid back the money given by the government to those slave owners. Consider the black and brown men and women in this country today who have paid for those slave owners' compensation through their taxes and tell me that slavery is past. Tell me you don't feel sick at the injustice, the inequality of it all. Sarah and Jane were right when they started the week telling us right relationships is tricky. Especially when we have a national history of not recognizing the spark of divinity in all people. Change has taken time and speaking truth is difficult to hear as well as do. When you don't see how all this affects my race, impacts my life as a person of colour and a mother, message my psyche with its killing as we worry if our child will get home tonight. When you don't see each stop and search, its arrest, its battery of black and brown bodies and ponder, ponder the intersectionality of race in these actions. When you cannot have meaningful discussions on racism and fail to reflect privileges, reflect on privileges and fragility, then how do we move into right relationship with one another? Let's think for a moment on this all. So much running around while we listen to some music. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise Blackbirds singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You were only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird fly Blackbird fly Into the light of the dark black night Singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise Blackbird fly Stop. 
Well, blackbirds singing in the dead of night Won't you take these sunken eyes and learn to see this moment to be free you were only waiting for this moment to be free you were only waiting for this moment to be free Paul McCartney wrote Blackbirds in the 1960s as he watched in America black people gain their civil rights. He explains that the blackbird is a black woman finally getting freedom to vote and sit at the front of the bus. Yet freedom from racism has yet to be achieved. I'm going to be honest and say right relationship with racial equity requires a move into reparation. Reparation defined as the action of making amends for a wrong one has done by providing payment or other assistance to those who have been wrong. To make amends is to repair the relationship by recognizing the inherent worth and dignity of the others. To make whole again what was broken generations ago and still perpetuated today. Right relationship is how people were supposed to be when Earth was first created and people were placed on this planet. Before we saw our nakedness, before we ate the apple, before we lost the language of commonality at the Tower of Babel. Right relationship is the appreciation and compassion for one another expressed by the Samaritan who stopped, who helped also expressed by our poem by Adam Lawrence Dreyer, who expressed that we taste the tears running down the cheek of the other and love beyond their fear. And it was good. Lizzie and Nicola, Nicola reminded us in their talk to note who is not in the room, not around the table. Who are we not in right relationship with? Repair, reparation, moves us into taking responsibility and accountability for the wrong done in numerous ways, including through education, through violent prevention, and through understanding decolonization. In order to be proactive in creating an anti-racist environment in home, in school, in work, in our healthcare, in our prison systems, in our policing, in the law, the environment, immigration, agriculture, food, housing, and our churches. That way, anti-racism becomes the norm in all our systems and structures in society. Jill Strauss, the co-author of the book, Slavery's descendants shared legacy of race and reconciliation and teacher of conflict resolution and communication at Manhattan Community College in New York. Ask, how do we make right in the present what our ancestors did to other people? How do we make right in the present what our ancestors did to other people?
in reality, no one present today can override the past and make right the wrong that was done. But what we can do is work at creating, cultivating and maintaining right relationships with each other in the present and future. Anthony, Professor Anthony Reddy explains in his 2018 article, Now You See Me, Now You Don't, that white invisibility and normality remains a crucial social, cultural and political signifier in the construction of Britishness and Englishness within the body politics of the nation. We're poses of, we have always done it this way and we don't see colour perpetuating assimilation culture and a fair-based relationship of not rocking the boat. You're from Africa, right, Winnie? A teacher said when teaching a session on slavery in a history lesson pointed to my brown skin. No, miss, I'm a brummy, I replied. That's not what I mean, and you know it, the teacher said in a stern voice, looking down at me crossly. We don't have people with your skin here. You all come from Africa like the slaves. The class giggled. I was annoyed. Why did she pick me? Why is it the first and only class that was showing black people in history had to be on slavery? Why not Marcus Garvey or Malcolm X or Queen Nefertiti? I was born in Birmingham, Miss, not Africa. And my parents are from Jamaica. Micro invalidation, an example of implying I don't belong, that my citizenship is not British. In remembering this incident from secondary school, I remember too the playground that afternoon. The name calling, references to apes, the comments to return to the jungle, the feeling of being less than. I hated history lessons after that. I didn't do it for GCSE. I felt odd. I recognise now that I, as a teen, rocked the boat. But I didn't often, as I attempted to fit in, assimilate into British whiteness culture. Sometimes I fear I did it too well as I experienced more than once standing in a group of white friends who were complaining of black people using racial slurs. When suddenly they remembered I was black and would say, not you Winnie, I didn't mean you, you're not like the others. Now imagine the hostility directed towards my brown sisters and brothers wearing hijabs or burqas, when people make assumptions about the reason for wearing it. Is it really a sign of oppression or is it a source of connection and dignity to their cultural heritage and family?
Gordon Willard Allport, psychologist, in his The Nature of Prejudice, tells us, we prize our own mode of existence and correspondingly underprize or actively attack what seems to us to threaten it. The social cultural construct of whiteness in these British lands is present in many structures of our society, in education, in work, in politics, in healthcare, and our churches. And as Unitarians, we are called to rise and break out of our relationship with fear and suspicion, work on our implicit biases, including me, and our structures that maintain racism, and journey into that of right relationship. This is big work. Eric and Laura spoke of how we can be in right relationship with our body, engaging who we are bodily. People of colour need spaces to do that in our worship too, to feel invited in, to praise with our bodies in movement, in dance and clap and in rituals. The impact could be revolutionary, powerful to cultivate spaces of faith that as Eric and, and Laura express, pays attention to our chest as it expands with breath and gratitude and joy and love and even sorrow, bodily. You and I, black or white, brown or mixed, are harmed by white supremacy culture as it affects all of us, as it prevents us from interconnectedness and right relationship. We are not defined by this whiteness culture. It informs us and our structures, but can be deconstructed and replaced. Faith challenges us to commit to racial equity in more than, in more than intention, but in action and expression. Now, it won't be easy. It's not an easy relationship as society perceives diversity and wantness as a dirty word. Conversations on race are difficult, but we must not close them down with maneuvering the conversation away, nor focusing on class instead of race, nor equating racism to other isms like gender inequality or classism or homophobia. All these equally deserve conversations, but we need the time to also focus on race and place it at the center of our conversations. Otherwise, the systemic structure of racial inequality will remain the status quo. We need to recognize our own status as a predominantly white, whiteness-centered denomination. We have to acknowledge the privileges that exist within the denomination, including privileges and the way we do worship, centered on the whiteness culture of liturgy, of readings rather than moved by the spirit, of hymns with 18th century tunes and meters, of readings by predominantly white authors with a few thrown in of Sufi poems. Contributions of other cultures must not be relegated 
to only recognisable months like Black History Month or LGBT months. And as Alex and Tori informed us yesterday, hidden disabilities and genders and non-genders and non-binary genders, sexuality and neurodiversity also need to be lifted up in our worship and included in the way we do worship if we want to cultivate a space of right relationship. And we need to repair the instruction to be silent or silencing others in the face of racist remarks or jokes. Repair the instruction to dress quietly in sobering clothes and acceptable hairstyles. Repair the implicit requirement, the tone policing, to be still and swallow your amens or hallelujahs or claps. A healing is called for and reparation in the form of overcompensated listening, overcompensated learning and overcompensated defending the other is needed. Unitarians need to right the relationship that has been wronged by others, by our ancestors, our teachers, our loved ones our politicians and we do that by engaging in an anti-oppression anti-white supremacy education decolonization and healing the pains of exclusion when diversity is involved and valued when difference is bridged and all parts of relationship is restored then we will have recognized the inherent worth and dignity of every person and love our neighbours as ourselves. May we do so.
We began this week with the not-so-simple question, what is right relationship? Explored with depth and care by Jane and Sarah. We then listened to the testimony of Nicola and Lizzie as they reflected on what brought them into the fold and how we may embrace millennials and Gen Zs, amongst others. Next, we heard from Eric and Laura, who talked at the starting point of right relationship with our body, encouraging us to live a life that is unapologetically human. Yesterday, Tori and Alex shared their lives with us to illustrate how churches may better live in right relationship with people who exist beyond the cisgender, heteronormative, neurotypical, and able-bodied assumptions that society carries. Winnie has spoken deeply of her life and discussed how right relationship requires our own introspection into our biases with a focus on racialized systems. One means of fostering right relationship with respect to the history of enslaved black people is the provision of reparations, a word connected to repair. In this facet of right relationship, the necessity of repair, the means and implications, will be the focus of my contribution to this week's conversation. It is hard to talk about repair without speaking of what needs repairing, or why something is perceived or understood to be broken. It carries the risk of airing dirty laundry, or feeling vindictive, or overly focusing on grievances. With this in mind, I begin my part of this talk on a bit of a tightrope. As a minister, I carry an expectation, perhaps seen as a sacred duty, of confidentiality. And as someone passionate about my church, I would hate to be thought to be dragging it through the mud, to bring up sore wounds or reveal past injury, for which some people may be unfamiliar. I want to be the biggest cheerleader for my church and all its occupants, as I know many people will be for their own places of worship. However, I am also here to speak my truth, to witness to this important question, how do we create right relationship? And more specifically, how do we create it when we are wounded by others and when we cause pain? The first night presented the idea that we never fully achieve, at least by any appreciable measure, right relationship. We are always fumbling around, Reverend Tinker commented. Much of religious literature is geared towards accepting the existence of pain, whether it is Buddha's all is dukkha, Jesus's does not the rain fall on the just and the unjust, or Hinduism's wheel of samsara. The serenity prayer reminds us to accept the things we cannot change, which for many people is an acknowledgement that the world we wish for is rarely the world we see. Injury and woundedness is part of life. Khalil Gibran, in his poetic work, The Prophet, finds pain even in the embrace of love. When love's wings in full view yield to him, though the sword hidden among his pinions, may wound you. Gabran continues with an analogy about pruning and growth, a gardener's image familiar to many here. We are taught that experiencing pain, suffering discomfort is part of our growth, that we become better people, more compassionate or stronger, 
no pain, no gain, we are glibly told. And perhaps this is the case, at least some of the time. But consider how convenient this proposition is for those doing the wounding. In a culture where when people are held to account, that when people are held to account, they claim that they're being canceled, where hurtful words are shared by people gleefully proclaiming that they are politically incorrect, where reasoned arguments are met with taunts of grow up, snowflake. The image of painful growth is so embedded far in this culture as to calcify and harden the hearts of its adherents. This is truly a time to be counter-cultural. Are there times, though, when the injury is too great to repair? What is right relationship when someone feels belittled by another in their pews? How far can our tolerance bend, and how far should we bend? Under what circumstances is a relationship severed, and when it is, is there any way for it to be a right unrelationship? But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're looking at repair in right relationship. Preparing this talk led me to reflect on some of the people who've been in my life, particularly those in the church, some who have been there a long time, some who have left, some who have left but then subsequently returned. When I began my ministry, I felt that a large roadblock preventing growth was our own dysfunction. Microaggressions, passive aggressions, backstabbing, providing selective information, or using the expression, oh, people are saying. These behaviors can create an atmosphere that is harmful to growth. A community can carry on with these behaviors, sure, it can survive, but it will not be seen as a loving community. Additionally, these habits are far more evident to people outside a chapel than inside. We become inured to them, unaware we're doing them, or we justify them with comments like, well, that's just what so-and-so does. But to someone coming from the outside, a church complicit in these behaviors will quickly lose its luster of sacred care and compassion. People who walk through the doors and hear belittling comments who witness sabotage and animus, will understand the church and its inhabitants to not be in right relationship. Which may feel unfair, as we have established that mistakes and injury are part of life. We should be given some measure of tolerance, some opportunity to re-establish loving bonds, some gift of grace or forgiveness. We want a recognition of our humanness, and hope the visitor will grant us that much. And if right relationship honors the individuals, it will honor their humanness, including their capacity to err. Right relationship, for me, seeks to grant people the fullness of their being in connection to others. And when this fullness is not honored, or when the connection is strained, we need to repair the relationship a process that includes acceptance of error and humanness, vulnerability and trust, as well as corrective action. Within the 
ancient Hebrew tradition, sacred bonds were described as covenants. You're likely familiar with God's covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Moses in the Hebrew scripture. Jesus as well spoke of the covenant when with the pouring of wine. Covenants as bonds provide opportunities of reconciliation and repair. They are not simply contracts that can be torn up, but instead offer mechanisms, rituals, reparations, recognition, to care for the relationship and to draw together that which has been torn apart. So, four years ago, my congregation adopted a covenant. People were asked to reflect on how they would want to be treated, on the reasons that they came to church, and how they wanted the church to be seen and to be understood by others. And with a bit of give and take, we settled on the following. We gather here in sacred fellowship to witness the fullness of our lives and all life, to hold and to be held, tell stories and listen, to be renewed and renew the world. We speak with care and patience, we act with gentleness and compassion. We forgive each other and ourselves. In faith that we build beloved community, we renew our covenant today. This weekly exclamation was to help the congregation feel bound together with a regular commitment. Historically, Christian churches are rooted in a recommitment after errancy. A week's worth of mistakes is sufficient to take into the church and to be absolved. Though our theology may be different, many people still approach our church with a sense of reaffirming their goodness despite any misstep, missteps that they may have taken Monday through Saturday. Though we are not bound by theological belief, I felt the covenant was open enough for most people to feel comfortable saying it. This was the primary reason. The secondary reason was to have a statement that could be pointed to when boundaries were overstepped, not in a binding way or a formal way, but as a touchstone that we might grasp when engaging with difficult behavior. Covenants reflect uh, or refer more to action than belief. And so our congregation was making a commitment to acting more loving. If needed, we could, re we could refer this call to speak with care and to act with gentleness, and we could draw people back into right relationship. That is the theory I had but it has played out differently in practice. I might reflect on it before a challenging conversation or if I feel that I have been called to account. However, when repair is necessary in a church, the environment is charged. Tensions run high, emotions are filled to the brim, defenses are at the ready. People feel their vulnerability and they push against it, often unconsciously, sometimes following a familiar pattern. 
Elizabeth Kubler-Ross spoke of the five stages of grief, and when someone needs to be held to account, they will be grieving. It may be that they are grieving the injury that they have caused. They may be grieving the possibility of losing a, a relationship. They may be grieving their own injured ego. And this is not to deny the pain that they have caused or the boundaries that they have overstepped. But we are talking about right relationship. And so when someone affronts another, they suffer as well. Kubler-Ross's first stage is denial. We should acknowledge that people go through the stages in different ways or return to various stages at different times. But I have so often seen the first response in a conversation about hurtful behavior to be some form of denial. It may not be a complete denial of events, though I have seen that, but it will very likely be some form of justification. It's not denying the action, but denying the harm it has caused. I have seen offensive language justified. I have seen aggressive behavior justified. I have seen destruction of church property justified. And to make sure this talk is not one-sided, I have seen myself justify acts that were clearly painful for others. So I can speak of how in that heat of the moment, when faced with the reality of our actions, consequences, the path of justification and denial is perceived to be the easier route. The second stage of grief, using Kubler-Ross's model, is anger. And when the severity of the action becomes apparent or undeniable, the accused may become belligerent. I've been called a lot of things, which makes me curious about what's been said behind my back when people have been called to account. And again, for balance in the heat of the moment, I have found myself having a rising voice, being sharper and louder, and using regretful words. Responses meant to push back against the truth of grief that I've caused. We may find examples of the other stages in our arsenal. Bargaining. I would not I would not mind what I did if you did if you did it to me. Or despondency. My behavior has proven me to be beyond redemption. And the final stage is of course acceptance. When one finally submits to becoming vulnerable in the process, very often, hopefully with an apology. Repairing right relationship requires vulnerability. Now, there is an argument that these stages, when dealing with hurtful behavior, are defense tactics of the ego. That may be the case, but we can grieve for our participation in a hurt-filled world, and that grief may take time and processing to fully acknowledge. Other means of repair are possible. When a covenant is broken, one method of resolution is called ouch-oops. The idea is if someone oversteps a boundary, saying something hurtful, for instance, the person who has been hurt has an opportunity to say ouch. 
to explain why the words were hurtful or assumptive or otherwise. The person who made the injustice then has the opportunity to say, oops, to own their action and to recommit to a relationship. The levity of the expression, ouch, oops, helps these uh, very tense scenarios cool down at least a little bit. Witnessing the use of the resolution techniques opened my eyes to the challenge of dysfunction. If you recall, I felt this was the major challenge of our church. Root out dysfunction and, like a dam bursting, we would experience a greater level of growth. Although I could feel confident many forms of dysfunction were being addressed, I saw that new dysfunction often replaced the old. I became aware that one could not simply revamp the system overnight. Not only was this going to be a long haul, it was a garden that required constant upkeep. For a relationship to be vibrant, it had to be responsive, living, shifting, growing as the participants grow. Not just for two people meeting, but for larger groups and the relationship between congregant and church. And as was mentioned on Tuesday and yesterday, the church and its relationship with the wider community requires a living commitment, continuously listening to the needs and opportunities of people often deemed different. Making amends and changing to support a wider collection of creation's diversity. When done well, repair not only restores right relationship, but actually strengthens it. Overstepping boundaries at times, but with the expectancy that this will happen and with the willingness to grow and change helps foster trust. And with a greater sense of trust, we can enter our relationships more authentically, more fully, knowing that our mistakes will not sever the bonds we have formed. Acknowledgement, apology, and corrective action are necessary for the preservation of a relationship. But to a degree. I said repair is healthy and good when done well. And it is not always done well. People get stuck in those cycles of denial and anger. Sometimes the action leaves such deep marks that healing will take a lifetime. Sometimes one's safety is risked by continuing a relationship. And sometimes the core of a relationship is unhealthy. I appreciate this is not the message one might want to hear or expect at the end of the week. But to examine right relationship requires acknowledging broken relationships. Or as I said earlier, right unrelationship. But how do we achieve a right unrelationship? Like repair, it is hard to gauge because we rarely see it in our culture. Over a decade ago, Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin announced they were undergoing a conscious uncoupling, which garnered mirth and derision in the media. Closer to home, a good friend speaks of the bemusement she faces 
when telling people how close she is to her ex-wife. However, I begin to realize these people are still in right relationship. My friend and her ex-wife continue to bolster and enlarge the other's life. Does the fact of their legal divorce negate the spiritual care they provide for one another? I found it was my own cultural baggage imagining them as an unrelationship. But the fact that their love is manifested differently than before, that it has evolved to new circumstances, demonstrates that repair is possible. The reasons that call for people to pull away often mean the breaking cannot be done cleanly or amicably or mutually. A relationship incapable of repair is likely to be seen differently by the different parties, advantageous to one and disadvantaged to the other. Even when the reality of these discrepancies is known, a way to reconnect may not feel possible. It is like a bridge built from two sides, without proper planning on how to meet in the middle. Time may assist the process, as well as reflection, and if your theology moves in this way, prayer. Individuals who bring injury to another are often injured themselves, and while not justifying abusive behavior, understanding the cycles people get caught up in may help those injured in relationships. Several years ago, Cross Street Chapel hosted an exhibition called The Forgiveness Project. This featured a number of stories about people who had suffered dearly or who had caused injury and their subsequent journey to forgiveness. The exhibition concluded with talk by Fegan Murray, whose son Martin Hett was killed in Manchester's arena bombing in 2017. Fegan, in addition to her efforts to pass a law strengthening security at large venues, came out as a victim prepared to forgive the man who killed her son. Forgiveness can serve both as a means of repair and as a way to create right unrelationship. It may be used to help restore bonds that had broken, and it can also serve as a way for an individual to reaffirm their disconnect from a harmful relationship. Speaking of her experience, Fegan draws from the outpouring love her son Martin shared with the world. Her act of forgiveness has allowed her to process some of the pain and carry on recommitted, recommitted to building a safer and more loving world. But her story is not everyone's story. And we would be conducting a grave injustice to expect all victims to forgive as she has. Forgiveness is a powerful tool given to the victim. Some can move on only when they have used it. Others hold it in preparation for repair. Even the Forgiveness Project 
included a story that had not been resolved by forgiveness. Repair is a significant part to maintaining right relationship. It involves understanding the boundaries of our being and wellness and respecting those set by other people. Right relationship necessarily involves error and repair. However, sometimes relationship cannot be right or repaired, and so we need to prepare for times when bonds must be broken. Repair is not easy. It is often messy, and it can take a long time. It may require compromise, listening, and forgiveness, all skills that rarely get headline space in today's world. But to maintain right relationship, to exist in community with others, whilst maintaining our full humanity, is a divine blessing worthy such work. Thank you. So we come now to some closing words, beginning with a pastoral prayer by Reverend Viola Abbott, minister at Coastal Virginia Unitarian Universalists in Virginia Beach. Let us open our hearts still our minds and enter a time of prayer. Let us call forth and hold in our hearts the stories of all who have come before us, the memories of those who are with us today, and the hope for tomorrow and for all of those who will come after us. Let us be thankful for this opportunity for healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation, while knowing that we can never, should never, forget what has brought us here today. Let us be glad that voices, that voice has not only been given to those whose sorrow and pain were their companions in this faith, but that stories told have been received with the goal of redemption and understanding. Let us call upon that light which shines in each of us to give us the strength to walk together into the future and to do the work that is necessary and which does not end here today. Let us have the wisdom to lovingly have the conversations we need to have with each other that we must have with each other in order to grow this faith in radical love and inclusion. Amen. You now have an opportunity to stretch your voices, which have been, I have assumed, patiently quiet. So let us sing together Joyce Holies when our hearts are in a holy place, when our heart is in a holy place.
And so we finish our time together with some words from the Reverend Mark Morrison-Reed. The central task of the religious community is to unveil the bonds that bind each to all. There is a connectedness, a relationship, discovered amidst the particulars of our own lives and the lives of others. Once felt, it inspires us to act for justice. It is the church that assures us that we are not struggling for justice on our own, but as members of a larger community. The religious community is essential, for alone our vision is too narrow to see all that must be seen, and our strength too limited to do all that must be done. Together, our vision widens and our strength is renewed. Thank you. Thank you, Winnie and Cody. That was an astonishing and thought and prayer and work-provoking gift to us all. We all have a lot to think about and possibly a lot to talk about. So I'm going to invite you all to pop off for five minutes to put the kettle on, do whatever you need to do, and then join us back in here so that we can put you into breakout groups for further discussion about the things that Cody and Winnie have raised. Just to remind you, if you're wondering about whether to come back or not, the chats are not recorded, they're not monitored. One of us may pop in and out, but they are for you to use to discuss these issues. And after those chats, we will bring you back in here so that we can say goodnight to you. If you're leaving us now, I want to thank you for having been with us this week. Your presence enhanced these occasions for all of us. I hope that some of what you've gained from our talks and from being amongst us all remains with you as you move forward. I send you my blessings and I wish you a blessed evening. For those of us who are coming back, let's take five minutes. <laughs>